Episode 138, Nigel Geergraw. Hey, it's Nikki Llewellyn and you're on Gut Plus Science. This podcast is on a mission to increase engagement at work. And on this show, we equip CEOs and people first leaders of all levels to make impact. Let's get to it. Gut Plus Science, we're back and we're continuing our conversations with outstanding healthcare leaders today. And I have a new co-host with me too, John Levy, president of CCA, an innovative employee assistance program that is rethinking how EAPs can serve healthcare with an eye towards better engagement amongst clinicians. A lot of their innovative solutions are targeted at overcoming traditional barriers such as stigma, fears of confidentiality, and licensure concerns. John is a great partner. He's about to introduce our guest, Nigel Geergraw. You probably remember from the past, we had an incredible episode. Nigel is the chief wellness officer at Oshner Health, and he's back to dig in deep to a topic that I know is near and dear to him, vulnerability. And we're going to be talking about practicing vulnerability and how it builds trust and relationships. So John, take it away. Today, we're talking with Dr. Nigel Girgra. Dr. Girgra is the Chief Wellness Officer at Oshner Health. He leads the efforts of the Office of Professional Wellbeing and is charged with improving the professional fulfillment of their employed physicians and APPs focused on enhancing practice efficiency and personal and team resilience and building an organizational culture that promotes provider well-being. Dr. Girgra received both his medical degree and PhD from the University of Toronto. He is a practicing transplant hepatologist and also serves as the medical director of liver transplantation at Oshner Health. Oshner Health is the number one healthcare organization in Louisiana, serving both Louisiana, Mississippi, and the Gulf South. And we're really excited to have you here today. I am delighted to be here, John and Nikki. It's a pleasure to be back. So good to have you back on Gut Plus Science. We had a great time on the last episode and gosh, it's been a couple of years. I know some of your story, but want you to share before we dig into mental health awareness conversation today, why is emotional well-being important to you? Maybe I can answer that from three perspectives. I've seen the importance of well-being and its opposite, burnout, through the lens of being a friend and a colleague, through the lens of being an organizational leader. And also closer to home, I've recognized its importance to me in the first person. So I don't think I'd ever really heard of burnout until 2013 when I returned to Toronto for a med school reunion. And I found out that one of my close friends and colleagues had died by suicide. And he was a very famous conquer surgeon. And because he was famous, you could Google about him. He had his own wiki page. And when I did, it seemed to have all the disturbing elements of burnout issues with alcoholism dating back to 2009, loss of privileges and credentials the following year, a criminal court case and witness tampering, and then a really bizarre story of a high-speed police car chase across rural Ontario. And I was just disturbed, affected for all the reasons you all would be. And it allowed me to reflect for a few years on this subject. And that takes me to the importance of well-being from the perspective of an organizational leader. You may have heard this concept of the tripling, which John Berwick introduced in 2006, which was meant to be a compass for healthcare organizations to navigate the challenges of healthcare reform. And that simply is achieving better outcomes with an improved patient experience with reduced cost. 
But about seven years later, this concept of the quadruple aim came up, that none of these three so important goals could be achieved without addressing a fourth goal, and that's the well-being of those that are actually delivering healthcare. It was the recognition by me that well-being is really a leading quality indicator, if not the leading quality indicator. Sure, there's a moral case to address. You heard that with my friend. But there's also a business case. It drives better patient experience better outcomes, decrease turnover, a more discretionary effort, even improve financial performance. And then lastly, it's touched me personally. I share with many that in 2020, I found myself languishing, maybe even very anxious, maybe even depressed. I went through that. I reached out for help. I got better. But everybody has their own version of the story or has been affected by this in some way. And Nigel, reflecting on our past episode together and then taking into account where we've come since then, what stands in the way of us truly impacting mental health stigma? The healthcare profession draws in what we term elite professionals. So these individuals, our healthcare workers, are usually one, deeply driven two, highly conscientious, and three, prone to guilt and self-doubt, and therefore not great in the self-compassion department. So there's an upside to this, right? You want a physician, you want a healthcare worker who works hard, is fastidious, willing to be there 24-7 for patients, for their colleagues, but there is a downside. So with lack of self-compassion, lack of self-care, these individuals are more predisposed to burnout and depression. And you know, it's not a nature thing. So this has been studied, for instance, with medical students. Matriculating medical students are less depressed, more resilient than other college students. But then something happens when they enter med school, when they do their residency, when they enter the profession. In all other professions, higher level of education is protective against burnout. The one degree that is a risk factor for burnout is the MD. So I think That sets the stage as to why it may be so prevalent in the healthcare setting. And let's talk about changing norms. So what are your thoughts on how we can lead change? And then I want to come back to your examples of seeing healthy norms that you've experienced that really encourage mental health support. So start with talking about your thoughts on how we lead change. I strongly believe it begins with leaders and shifting away from traditional leadership behavioral norms. Leaders need to be open, authentic, sharing with those that work with them when they don't maybe have their A-game, showing a few of their warts, so to speak. Nikki, we've talked about Brene Brown and this concept that trust doesn't naturally lead to vulnerability. It's vulnerability that leads to trust. And I'm talking about vulnerability not all the time, sort of vulnerability with some boundaries and perhaps even with an agenda. But I believe this creates an environment that's more permissive and safer for individuals to come forth openly. I also think we need to remove symbols that propagate the stigma in healthcare. So examples of that would be questions on licensure applications, credentialing applications. These are things, I think, in combination doing these things that maybe will increase the demand. And I'm talking about increasing the demand in a good way for support services But then we also have to think about increasing the capacity and access points for people who seek support services. And you have to systematize things, if I can call it that. So I remember Peter Drucker saying that culture eats strategy for breakfast. So there can't be an organizational strategy around incorporating mental health 
initiatives more broadly and resilience initiatives if there isn't a culture that supports it, a culture that supports both micro and macro recovery, that supports vacations, long weekends, evenings that aren't disturbed. And do the leadership behavioral norms match this? Is it one thing to say, have a great vacation, but then I'm calling you while you're on vacation or emailing you at night or texting you at night? Are there opportunities to insert micro recovery, even in healthcare? There's probably very few situations where you can't take a 45 second break and just sort of pause in the day. I think the strategy doesn't really matter. You can start individualizing initiatives, apps, courses, bite-sized YouTube videos that help support the mental health of your employees. Coming off of our session with Maureen Fagan on our first healthcare episode, she was talking about do as I do and how powerful modeling is. And I think she even made example of when we say take time off, we can't as a leader ask our people to take time off. But then when we take time off, we're not really off. Just ties in very nicely with what you shared, like the power of modeling this as leaders. So thank you for sharing that. So let's talk about communication as communication is so key to making change and really the root of nearly any problem. It's rooted in communication issues. Share some of the specific communication experiences you've seen make progress. Well, I'll give you one. So I shared earlier in the podcast that in August of 2020, I was personally languishing, anxious. I recognize the triggers every year. Every summer, I go into a mini funk. Usually it represents the anniversary of the birth of one of my sons, Bennett. And then the following year, unfortunately, is death from a brain tumor. But usually I'm able to invoke compensatory mechanisms. I usually go up to Canada to spend time with friends and loved ones. I'm able to exercise. That summer I had my first significant knee injury. And so those things weren't available to me. I just found myself sort of spiraling out of control a bit. And, you know, there was a good end to the story. I was able to get help and everything worked out. But my aha moment was that everybody, Nikki, has a version of this story. And so the following month in September... I have this sort of quarterly chief wellness officer message. And historically, that had been a kind of sterile report. It was just, this is what we've done. This is how great we are. But in this message in September of 2020, I told this story that I just shared with you. And then more broadly discussed the issue of mental health in healthcare. And the response rate was overwhelming. It was easily the most opened executive message email responses that weren't just thanks, two-page email responses, an individual sharing with me that they'd lost their home and that he was living in his car. And we were able to get that individual help. Folks reaching out saying that they were going to personally seek help. So I think this is an example, not the be-all and end-all example about how an authentic message can really resonate and be a call to action. And I've seen this with all our executives now sort of doing more storytelling, personalizing their messages rather than just reporting out. Nigel, when you think of any other practices that you've seen Oshner as a whole implement as far as communication practices, are there any others that come to mind that you'd like to share with our listeners, maybe for them to consider? I see the subject coming up more in department meetings, check-ins, more in one-on-one meetings. There's a more broader conversation about mental health at Oshner. You've probably heard about me talk about the concept of the human energy crisis that exists currently. This idea of there being a mismatch between energy demand and energy supply. You know, not all stress is bad. (laughs) So for professional athletes, stress is good, but recovery is equally important. 
But unlike the NFL, which I love, healthcare has become 24 7, 365. So, you know, at Oshner, we're looking at how do we really support and how do we put systems in place to manage the four dimensions of our healthcare workers' energy tank? So, the physical dimension, rest, nutrition, activity, the spiritual dimension, and that should be easier in healthcare. And that is connecting with a higher purpose, but also the emotional dimension, connecting with family and friends and loved ones. And we now are a little more open about healthcare workers inviting their families into the workplace and not having those boundaries so much. And then obviously the mental dimension, which we're talking about today, being in the moment, not ruminating about the past or anxious about the future. And specifically at our health system, I think there's four components to our emerging strategy to encourage mental health support. One is just simply raising awareness. That's something this podcast is doing, educating folks. We talked about the second component, destigmatization. We talked about leading authentically, and we're doing more of that. There also, Nikki, has to be a commitment to measuring these things, measuring mental health, measuring burnout, measuring depression, measuring PTSD, but not just that, the drivers of burnout and what promotes well-being. So measuring culture, measuring perceptions of leadership, workflow, perceptions of teamwork. So that's the third component to the strategy. And then hopefully we'll talk a little bit about this later, being a little more nuanced and varying the specific support services that we offer to our employees. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. And Nigel, I know on a recent call with John and I, you talked about a few things we want to dig in on. And John, feel free to chime in here as well, because I know you were interested in more about these topics. One's the opt-out approach and the other is the mental health resource group. So let's start with the opt-out approach. What is it? And share some examples. So this is a concept that seemed to come up often when I was doing department rounds or unit rounds during the various surges, and there have been many surges. Oshner, I believe, has a very robust EAP program, but we saw utilization go down during the pandemic. Now, there may be very good explanations for that, but generally folks started actually using the word opt-out. So in terms of opt-in, which I think is what people generally view the EAP program, it's more than just that, but generally folks have to bubble up to a point that they're reacting to a situation, they're in crisis, and I think that could be improved. And so by opt out, I mean being a little more proactive. I heard folks hearing that they wanted more on-demand services. They wanted to get upstream. They wanted this just part of the work environment. These are things that we've been trying to think about. So we're trying different things out. We're experimenting. We're in partnership with some mental health startups. There's one company, Happy, and their value proposition, I guess, is they're, I'm exaggerating this, but they're an army of empathetic support givers, about 2,500 of them, armed with a 1-800 number and an app. And they give out outbound calls just to check in on folks. And there's been high adoption rate with our nurses, our African-American employees. And if these individuals want follow-up calls, they can schedule return calls. And we've seen data with this that as utilization of HAPPY goes up, depression screens go down in those that are using the service. There's another company I know you've heard of, Nikki and John, called Even Health, and they have a platform called Cabana. And again, simply Cabana is group therapy with a licensed behavioral health specialist, but it's truly anonymous. You create an avatar of yourself. You can disguise your voice. 
there are various topics that people may be interested in. Group therapy around challenges parenting, managing shift change, dealing with anxiety. And we've had a lot of positive feedback about Cabana, so we're scaling that. And then we've been a little more varied in how we think about resilience offerings, anywhere from developing a very popular series of TEDx talk YouTube videos around various elements of well-being and burnout. We've seen high utilization, high net promoter scores with these services. We've developed an eight-hour resilience course that's been very popular. So it's not going to be one thing. I think it's just a number of things together that start to chip away at the mental health issues of our workforce. Absolutely. And I'd love to shine a light on the mental health resource groups. If you could talk a little bit about the framework around developing this and what the offering looks like for our listeners. Yeah, I'm really excited about this. And this sort of underscores the importance of, I think, destigmatization of the subject. So this certainly wasn't my idea. I was at a meeting just pre-pandemic that was hosted by Johnson & Johnson. And they are a company I think is best in class outside the traditional healthcare setting in supporting uh, the mental health needs of their employees. And they described at this meeting their resource group, their affinity group around mental health. And it actually turns out it's by far their most popular resource group. And this is meant for employees that have either been touched themselves by mental health issues or they've been affected with friends or loved ones. When you think of mental health or folks have had a history of mental health issues, they likely have qualities that we should embrace in healthcare. I I would imagine they're generally more empathetic having gone through these experiences. They're probably grittier than many. So I think this is something that we need to embrace as a health system. I really thought that this would be a good idea to try this out in healthcare more broadly and specifically our healthcare system. And I think it's a true illustration of how well-being and diversity, equity, and inclusion start to intersect. So we have a chief diversity office, Deborah Grimes, who really owns these resource groups. She's been enormously receptive, very helpful. We have a number of other resource groups, the traditional ones around our African-American employees, our LGBTQ But this is a resource group that we're planning to launch, I think, next month. I think it'll be introduced by our CEO, who's going to personalize it a bit, which will be great to send a message that this is okay. I'm hoping, I'm pretty sure this will be a very important step for our organization in promoting this conversation. And John, I know you work in mental health and well-being every day, advancing that, and healthcare is a big focus for you. I know that Nigel had also mentioned Even Health and the Cabana product, and I know you work alongside those guys. I'm going to let you take it from here. You might have a couple questions more to dig on, and I know you had a couple of questions yourself to be able to share with Nigel. Thanks, Nikki. It's interesting, Nigel. So you have a great number of tools. It seems like you have a lot of tools in your toolbox, and maybe you're continually expanding them. This is born of my work with Cabana ourselves. What are your thoughts about having these tools intersect and almost feed one another? Like if the people at Happy know about even health and vice versa. Well, the way I look at some of the initiatives that we talked about or what we're doing more broadly with our well-being strategy and the specific initiatives we're trialing is that these things are and should be complementary and even synergistic with our EAP program. So with all of these initiatives, whether it's Happy whether it's Cabana, whether it's the depression survey that we send out, whether it's with our unit-based rounding and the structured debriefing sessions that we run, there's always a link to the EAP program and in a way to promote the EAP program. 
So I don't look at this as an either or. I think this is a both and. And I don't think in any way this is going to decrease utilization of our EAP program. I think this will increase. I think you're right, Nigel. I've seen that as well, that these things kind of feed one another. We have some healthcare clients. I know we talked about this as well, Nigel, that have recently rolled out on-site counseling at their locations. And that actually has increased usage in the EAP outside of the on-site counseling. So it is, they do feed each other these initiatives, which I think is wonderful. I think you're absolutely right. If it's okay, Nikki, we're going to pivot a little bit. I want to ask Nigel about some of his favorite podcasts that inspires your leadership work. There's a few. So I'm friends with Malcolm Gladwell, so he'd be upset if I didn't mention his podcast, Revisionist History. I love that. But I think for work, I just love, love, love Adam Grant. And he has this podcast called Work Life. I just think he's right on. I think he's right on with his social media posts. I think he's right on with everything he does. And there was one podcast I remember where he specifically talked about, you know, professions like healthcare, where there's a great degree of emotional labor. And he focused on the concept of compassion and empathy in the workplace. And he talked about, if I remember correctly, these concepts of surface or shallow acting that many of us are guilty of, sort of a protective mechanism when somebody tells you something that's emotional, we try and set boundaries. But he then talked about deep acting and really exploring things with empathy. And there is evidence that it's not just better for the patient, it's not just better for your employees, it actually is better for you and sort of mitigates and reduces the risk of burnout and mental health downstream issues. Well, Nigel, this has been such a meaningful conversation, lots of powerful takeaways that I'll be summarizing at the end. But before I share those, we're going to jump over to our lightning round where we'll learn a little bit more about some of your favorite things, Nigel. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Nikki, and here's a little fun fact about me. My first job out of college was with an EAP, and I loved it, and it changed the way that I saw the workplace. But wow, the depth of EAPs today, like CCA, that provide personalized coaching and employee engagement services, leadership training that is on specific topics based on workplace needs, Wow. Kudos CCA for your innovation in the EAP space. And thank you for your partnership to support Mental Health Awareness Month and Nurses Week. All right. It's Nikki and we're back on Gut Plus Science with Nigel Geergraw and John Levy, my co-host today. John is about to lead us into our lightning round, which is always fun. So John, you want to take it away? I will. So Nigel, favorite book of all time. That is a tough one. So I know I've shifted a lot during the pandemic from nonfiction to fiction. And I've read much more, I think, as a coping mechanism during the pandemic. I will say that there have been very few books that I've read from front to cover in two days. But actually, I just flew back from Maryland on Saturday and I was at the airport and I needed something to read. So I was in the Hudson News and I saw this book. It was called That Summer. I picked it up on Saturday and I couldn't put it down. I finished it Monday evening So I thought it was fantastic. That's a recent read. Another book three decades ago that was sort of similar to that not being able to put down was The Cider House Rules by John Irving. I totally love that book. So those would be some examples. I think the book I remember the most from my childhood that really affected me was Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. And I thought that was such a terrific novel. We talk about recovery and taking time. So I assume this does occur every once in a while. There are times when you're not working, Nigel. So favorite hobby when you're not working? 
I mean, my wife would argue I need more hobbies. I would say, I mentioned reading. I look at that as a hobby. My wife and I like to dance. I think that's probably the greatest way to feel better quickly. (laughs) And then one hobby, if I can call it a hobby, and I'll say it's probably in the top five things that my wife and I don't see eye to eye on, is my capacity and desire to watch football. I'm a big football fan and, you know, There are some days actually in the fall when there are games in England, if you would like, you could get up at 8.30 and watch football straight through till 10 o'clock at night. Anyway, I love watching football. I'm a sports fan. I got to know this really quick. Nigel, what is your favorite football team? Nike. It's the New Orleans Saints. You know, I moved to New Orleans in 2007 and they won the Super Bowl in 2009, 2010. And this was in the early years post-Katrina. And I have never seen how a sports team could so positively affect the psyche of a community and just the state of celebration that New Orleans was in as it became evident that year they were going to have a good football team and they got into the playoffs and then eventually won the Super Bowl. It was just amazing. I'm also a hockey fan being from Canada, so we're getting into playoff season now. Where is your favorite vacation spot? Yeah, that's the easiest question you've asked me. Hands down, Rome hands down. Went there on our honeymoon in 2003 and then went back actually with another couple, which is always dicey, but we had a fantastic time. This was a few years ago. Everything about Rome I love. It's a little more easy to get to see in a week and a half than say Paris is. I love the food. I love the culture. I love the shopping. Easily Rome. Nigel, how can listeners connect with you after the show? Well, sure. I've got a Twitter handle. It's just N Gearbra. So N, my first initial Gearbra. You can connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm not sure what my LinkedIn handle is, but you can just look me up. There aren't too many Nigel Gearbras in the world. And I'll even share my Instagram handle, which is just at Gearbra. John, thank you for your co-hosting. Great job. And Nigel, such a treat to have you back. Here's my truth you can act on from today's episode. Number one, practice storytelling and insert vulnerability into those stories. This builds trust and people can relate to and remember stories. They're impactful. For most humans, we have to be intentional with our efforts to tell stories and very intentional in our efforts to get uncomfortable and share raw, real, vulnerable pieces of ourselves. That's how people truly relate to us, real sharing. You heard this in Nigel's story about his email he sent out to all Oshner employees about his own struggle and then the reactions that he got from people. Number two, collaborate with experts and bring in tools that accelerate your progress. Make sure those tools talk to each other and fuel each other's impact. Nigel spoke of Cabana, even Health's flagship product, and then John's EAP, CCA. That solution works with Cabana to further EAP impact. So such a great example of the partners we work with and how this all intersects. Number three, innovate. With the data and insights you collect from employee feedback, you'll find problems. Find time to innovate and create solutions to those problems together as a team. Nigel shared the story behind creating the mental health resource groups, all from team innovation. So great. Another wonderful episode. Thanks, guys. We'll see you next time. We just left the world a little bit better. Now go do something with it.